thank you for tuning in to the Catch a Lift Funds Coach's Corner podcast. We hope you enjoy today's episode and will consider supporting the Catch a Lift Fund and the veterans we serve. Visit our website for more information about our programs at catchaliftfund.org. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis or suicidal thoughts, please call 988 or the Veterans Crisis Line 988, followed immediately by the number one. The views and opinions expressed during the Coach's Corner podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the Catch-A-Lift Fund. The Catch-A-Lift Fund does not verify or warrant the truth or accuracy of statements made during the podcast, and statements therein are not to be construed as an official policy or position of the Catch-A-Lift Fund. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only. And nothing herein should be construed as health, medical, or other professional advice. The Coach's Corner is a place for veterans to connect, heal, and share their stories. I'm Melissa Luke, the host of the Coach's Corner podcast. I am a U.S. Army Iraq War veteran, coach, and program director for the Catch-A-Lift Fund. The Coach's Corner is sponsored by ID Technologies. Welcome to this week's episode of the Coach's Corner. I'm excited to welcome back Ken Fontenot to today's show. Ken is a U.S. Marine Corps veteran, Cal veteran athlete, and new state legislator for North Carolina. We highlighted Ken's service in episode 102. Check out that episode to hear more about Ken's service to our great country. Today, we'll be discussing Ken's recent run for office in North Carolina. Welcome to this week's episode of the Coach's Corner. Ken, welcome back. Thanks for taking some time with us today. Hey, Melissa, it's good to be back, and thank you for having me uh, again. Oh, it's such a fun time getting to talk with you, Ken. Let's jump right into it. Ken, what drove you to run for office? You know, I was considering running for office. The thing I remember most clearly was uh, going to Afghanistan in 2012, and then I always heard the horror stories of the rules of engagement in Vietnam from my uncle and other people who fought in that era. And then, you know, it was so surreal that when I finally got there, I was getting those same rules. It just didn't make sense. And I clearly saw that, you know, policy drives insanity in times. So I felt like if there's any perspective our nation needed, it was a veteran perspective because we are often on the end of policy decisions right. where we see directly the impact of what somebody was thinking in Washington or wherever else. So I felt like my perspective, along with many other veterans, was absolutely needed in that sphere. Ken, so fast forwarding here, what was it like for you to get a bid from a party that you weren't affiliated with? You know, it was it was several things. <laughs> First, it was like, I, I consider it providential because, you know, I guess I always had like a leaning toward just being interested and political affairs, though I never got involved. Like, I, most right. I ever did was vote. That's it. I never volunteered, was never uh, activist, none of that. And then one day, I was looking at the representation I had in my county, very dissatisfied with it because the woman who was representing us didn't even live in our county. Um, and I just prayed, you know, you know, God, if you make a way for me to do this, I'll do it. 
And then when it actually happened, it was really, I would say one sense flattering and another sense encouraging, you know, because it is nice to have someone see what you have to offer and to really support you in which they did. And it was very, it was a very good, good run the first time. That's tremendous. Ken, after you got that bid, what were the next steps? So the typical next steps in any state race, it's different for federal, but it is you're going to file with the state or no, the county board of election. And that will have a deadline as to for which particular race you have to file a very small filing fee. Then you have to order uh, open a candidate bank account where people can make donations to your campaign. And then after that, it's off to the races with meeting people. You know, the number one number one asset in any race is the number of people you can meet personally, period. It is really that simple. That's incredible. What did that look like for you, Ken? Or would you really classify your campaign as a grassroots campaign? I felt like it was grassroots, you know, because uh, both in 2018, 2022, my campaign was had Democrats, Republicans, and independents on it. Okay. So all three sides came together to support me. And then that's incredible. Let's like, let's highlight that for a minute because (laughs) that, I mean, when you first told me that, I'm like, wait, what? Because we see so much, right? You know, I was, uh, you know, fighting across political lines and so much. So I just want to touch on that for a minute. What was that like to get support across, across all the aisles? It was good. I mean, because it's like, I find it really disconcerting that people would believe our country would be better if the the other half of it was not there. I mean, I think that's odd. And then, you know, it's also like weird because it's like, okay, someone has a different view to me. Doesn't mean I need to demonize them and they're going to destroy the world. You know, are there people I absolutely positively disagree with? Absolutely. But at the same time, I believe that we all really are fighting for the same things. I think we all want justice. We all want people to prosper. We want to be a land of opportunity and freedom and a place where we continue to maintain uh, the traditions that we've had. And so to be able to bring together all sides solidly and have them even speak out publicly that they were on my side, I was pleased because I believe that can be done. And that was one of the things I really wanted to accomplish. Absolutely incredible. Um, Ken, talk to us some more about that grassroots campaign. What did that look like for you? Um, other than having people door knock for me, it was door knocking myself. Some people really like to attend events and I think events are good, but my only issue with events is that there's a gazillion of them. And if you're at a decently sized event, most people will not know you're going to be there and you can't meet everybody in the room. So I like to meet people where they're at, which is at home, you know? And so now that people are working from home, oh man, it's a, it's a gold mine in my opinion for grassroots activity. And not only that, what I found interesting is that um, more people, I don't know, maybe because they're home all day, more people now than ever answer their door. And so I got to have so many face-to-face conversations. It was awesome. I enjoyed myself. Ken, talk to us about the grassroots campaign that you ran. Absolutely. I would say the key to any campaign is the number of people you can meet face-to-face as a candidate Second key would be your supporters meeting someone face-to-face. So what that looked like for us was going door-to-door. Like, it sounds old school, but it is, in my opinion, the easiest determining factor of support. 
yet yet it is the hardest in terms of um time committal because it takes right. a lot of time to do it so personally speaking i spent most of my time meeting people face to face door to door having good conversations and i felt like maybe it was the covid era or something coming to an end maybe people were ready for a company because i had so many people open a door <laughs> invite me in have conversations incredible. it was nice i bet it was um you know, and I, I got to think that you probably just had some very incredible uh, conversations from people from all walks of life. Uh, but I am curious, you know, you can also run into some people that they're very angry. They're angry, you know, just stuff going on and, you know, maybe injustices or whatever it may be. Um, how do you handle that when you're literally knocking on doors and, and folks are, you know, kind of keyed up and just upset about what's happening in the community? You know, it's interesting. So we did somewhere over 10,000 doors. And that oh, was... Ten th oh, my gosh. It's incredible. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I think me and my kids did several thousand. I had one guy knock his whole district. We had another couple people do several hundred to a thousand. So, you know, what's fascinating. In that several thousand, there were only three or four people who the most, they just close the door on us okay and that was it we actually from door to door did not have a single hostile conversation okay. even more fascinating we only had one hostile interaction and that was on um voting day but the person who was hostile was hostile with even his own party okay because you know he knew he was part of a sinking ship so um i, I count that as a one-off uh but it, we actually had a very positive time the whole at least over here. That's incredible. That's really interesting to hear. Um, and you took your kids on a lot of the a lot of the campaigning like that. What was that like for them to be a part yeah, of it with you? Yeah, yeah. I, we, you know, we bond around fitness. So what we would do is, you know, I'd <laughs> I'd offer them something like, okay, you guys do good. You can have a Gatorade afterwards, <laughs> which of course they're going to hustle for, right? Yeah, and that's so awesome. we would. Uh, I'd walk in the street and carry the material and they would literally run door to door one after each other as we walked, ring the doorbell, tell them to vote for my dad or leave the material on the oh door. And so it was a lot of fun and we got to do it together. I mean, that was the funnest part of it was That's so cool. spending time together being productive. I love that too, that you tied it back to the fitness too, right? Because you all are such a great fitness family. And again, I highly encourage everybody to go back and listen to Ken's previous episode. It's such a good conversation and so much great stuff out of that. Um, I imagine that, you know, that's going to be something they're going to look back on for decades to come and really their whole life, you know, and I'm sure just be an incredible memory with their dad. That's just tremendous. Um, you know, so you said just thousands and thousands of doors were knocked on, Ken. How many volunteers did you gather during, during this time? Ooh, wow. I think at our height, somewhere between 50 to 70. Wow. And I only say that because at some point in time, you'll lose track. Yeah. You just, right. you just do, especially here. I mean, the, the objective is simple, and that is knock the city, like get to every okay. door in the city. But then, you know, you'll have things where, like, you'll have people in the county where you like, give them a box of signs and pamphlets and say, hey, go, go to your people, right? And then you might have someone to say, okay, hey, I can go to my neighborhood. And then you might have someone say, hey, I have friends who need signs. And then it just starts spinning out of wow. control in yeah. sense of you lose track of who's doing what. You just know people are. Ken, so you did so much work, you know, knocking on so many thousands of doors yourself, your children, all the volunteers. 
What other ways did you use to get the word out about your campaign? Letters to the editor to the Wilson Times, which is our local paper. It has a good readership. And I'm always passionate about, for those that are interested, because some people are not, <laughs> about what it is I'd like to see accomplished and what it is we're facing as a nation. And so that was a good way to get the word out. You know, I, the two biggest things I got feedback from were people who got our flyers at their door and then people who read our letters to the editor talking about what we were going to do and why. So that seemed to be very productive for, for us in addition to social media. Incredible. Ken, looking back at, at this time campaigning this past year, what would you say was the most difficult part about that process? A campaign is a marathon. And I've always heard, you know, it's the first couple of miles and the last couple of miles of a marathon that are the most brutal. Yeah. And I would agree. You know, when you first start campaigning and you hadn't done it for a while, going door to door is like nerve wracking because you haven't really got the sense of the community yet where they're at with that type okay. of thing. And right. then like after a month or two of doing that, you realize no one's no one's bothered by you. So you feel OK doing it, even optimistic. Okay. And then the last month is absolutely nerve wracking because no matter how much work you've done, nothing matters until you get the numbers, bottom line. So that is the other part is hard is getting to the finish line and actually crossing the finish line. But it is a great sense of relief once you do it. That's incredible. So let's, let's talk about that, Ken. Take me through election day. You know, let's talk about election day. <laughs> what can you tell us about that day? Yeah, so election day, typically candidates will try to make it to all 29, well, all the polls in their city. For me, it was 29. Now, you, there's no way I'm getting to 29. I was going to say, like, just like, how, yeah, how, how does that work? That's incredible. <laughs> I don't think it's possible. I mean, yeah. I don't even know how productive it is. So what I did do was find the most valuable polls in terms of numbers and okay. likely turnout. And that's where I stationed friends and family who wanted to work the polls for me. And right. then I myself kind of parked myself at uh, the largest poll where the people would be, which was it just so happened to be my neighborhood. So I stayed there all day with my wife. Other than that, I would maybe go to places to bring some of my volunteers food and uh, water or whatever else they needed and then stay at the poll until it closes at 730. But we left maybe at like five or six so we can go to dinner. Okay. And then after the polls close, the number is supposed to come in. Most states, counties are automated, but, you know, technology, you always got Murphy's Law, yeah. right? Murphy's Law right. show up <laughs> when yep. things are inconvenient. And so uh, out of the 29 polls, 16 came in by like 9 o'clock. There were still nine out. And by 10, it was obvious they weren't going to come in for something that happened. So oh, at that point in time, I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> I'm going home. I'm going to bed. <laughs> and oh, so I went home, went to bed. And then around 1130, I got a call from the speaker of the house. He's like, congratulations. I said, what happened? I went, <laughs> when I left the number turned in, he said, no matter what happens from now, the numbers are such that you cannot lose. I'm like, sweet. All right, we did oh it. My so I got the news around 1130. And then finally around one in the morning, all the polls came in. 
<laughs> Ken, what was the feelings like in the moment when you received that phone call? You know, you're at home, you're in bed, you've, you know, time to, to call it a day and you get that call from the Speaker of the House. What were the emotions in that moment? You know, it's interesting. Um, so one of my goals uh, in my PTSD journey was equanimity. It's actually a word I hadn't heard about in um, almost all my life. I don't think I've ever heard about it. But when I found about, about equanimity, it was acknowledging the pleasurable in the moment, also acknowledging the painful in the moment, but coming back to center. So in the moment, I was, I was like relieved, really. Like it was over. Yeah, I was happy. Right. And I wouldn't say I was like through the roof. I would just say I felt like equanimable. Like I was so happy to be doing it. I was excited to be doing it. You know, but my prayer through this was win or lose that I would just enjoy it. You know, learning to enjoy the process instead of the product. Ooh, yeah. And I feel like that shift to processional enjoyment has just allowed me to enjoy more of every day in the moment. You know, because I feel like when you get obsessed with the product, once you get it, now what? Right. Yeah. And so I would say it just really opened a door to more, more enjoyment. Like I love my job. I am in an office and I started working like a month ago. <laughs> so, I'm having a ball. So I would just say uh, I was really more relieved than anything else, but also uh, grateful to be able to give that, be given that opportunity. Oh my gosh. That's incredible. Thank you for, for talking to us about that, Ken. That's, that's incredible. Um, I want to switch gears here just a little bit. And I want to talk to you specifically, Ken, about veterans in office. Um, you know, and you kind of touched on this stuff in, begin in the beginning, right? Policymakers and stuff and who's affected by these policies and what's happening. So, Ken, why do you believe veterans are good candidates for office? I think veterans are good candidates for office because of practical experience and life experience. You know, one of the things I really enjoyed about uh, going to war with my brothers and sisters in arms is that there's a bottom line. And that bottom line is we're all together at the end of the day. And we need to realize that. I think that is often forgotten in the political realm and in the realm of uh, all this r rhetoric that we see going on in a nation. And I think veterans see beyond that and are extremely practical while at the same time having a strong philosophical drive. And I feel like because veterans have already invested in the nation, they are more careful with what they do and why. They're more, have more foresight, more, more forethought and insight into what they're doing. So I find veterans are just better leaders, in, in my opinion. You know, looking back at, you know, uh, you know, and I don't even, they don't even necessarily need to be challenging moments, right, Ken, but just, um, experiences that you had, you know, your time in Afghanistan and everything, do you look back, do you lean back on any of those experiences to what you're, you know, what you're doing now in office? Absolutely. And you know, it's interesting. So um, I feel like I'm going through officer candidate school again, <laughs> but incredible. not only that, this is like a super much better version. And I'll give you an example. I had, um, who was it? So we were going in our first day of orientation and it was the services administration's officer, something like that. He runs all, he runs the staff that works for us in essence. And uh, he opens up to this, it's a freshman class. He's like, thank you so much for everything you're doing. We really appreciate that the fact that you're here, you want to serve your country. Now, 
Let me tell you all something. None of you are special. You're not doing anything groundbreaking. You, when you, you're here and then in a couple years it'll be gone. Someone else will take your place. Do you understand this? <laughs> and I'm, I'm cracking up inside because some of my contemporaries are, are super upset at this message. But I'm like, man, after going through boot camp and OCS, I mean, tickle me with a feather, bro. You're not hurting my feelings at all. I mean... It was okay. I, I could care less because now that I've been through the fire of these military traditions, right? I was not the least bit offended. So I feel like I'm prepared because of one being an officer in NCO yeah. has so you know, just given me experience that I believe helps me to understand the machine. The bureaucracy is very similar in, in the coordination of that execution of ideas. So I feel like I've been prepared for it. Ken, why are you eager to serve on the Veterans Affairs Committee? So the number one uh, passion I have for Veterans Affairs is an initiative that, uh, I, it, that has been going, but I want to see it exponentially multiplied. And that is right now, we have uncovered that a lot of veterans were discharged with OTH, or in some cases, dishonorable discharges, um, because what we didn't know at the time was that they were undiagnosed with PTSD yeah, right. and all the wounds of war. And so I had some people that I served with that, that happened to, and I think that's tragic because we shouldn't ask someone to go to war and then we don't do right by them by treating right. the things war has caused. Yeah. And so... The one of the reasons I'm passionate about being in the Veterans Affairs Committee is I want to turbocharge discharge upgrades. Um, I, I know a whole lot of people who were wrongfully discharged. Again, not that they didn't do anything wrong, but that they were suffering from mental health conditions that were not diagnosed, nor did we treat. Therefore, the discharge is not just. And I'm looking to reverse as many of those as possible. Oh my gosh, that uh, that definitely hits close to home, right? Because we all know extremely tragic stories about that. And, um, you know, for anybody that doesn't know, Ken, would you touch on what it means, you know, for a veteran, for someone in our community to have discharges other than that honorable, what that does to a person? Oh, yeah. So the problem, my biggest issue with the OTH and even dishonorable is like, it's like the lion's share of the benefits are gone. And even health benefits in some extent, which is like, it makes no sense to go that far, especially considering the sacrifice that people made. And then not to mention when we're, you know, the service we ask them to perform is responsible for some of these issues. Yeah. So, you know, the OTH, I just think, especially in the cases where we've sent someone to war, their friends were killed. Um, wounded, injured, whatever have you, we ask them to do things that, you know, later on they feel were unconscionable. Whatever the case is, you know, if they were discharged with that, and like many veterans who've been sent into the system without real good mental health care or even physical health care, that's a tragedy. And so some of the guys I'm working with what they'll be able to get is their VA benefits. They'll be able to get medicine. They'll be able to get physical help. They'll be able to get mental help. They will be able to get their disability because some of these people did go to war and they get hurt and they should be getting paid disability. They'll get their GI bill. They'll get their state benefits. 
And so when I look at um, the opportunity to reverse a lot of these tragedies, to me, it is uh, the one thing I feel I will measure my career by concern for veterans is how many vets can I get through this process successfully? That's tremendous, Ken. Um, I, I can't tell you how happy I am to hear that and to hear that that's a push for you. And, and I know I speak for many veterans when I say that. Um, Ken, you know, really at the end of the day, when, when you look at, you know, this service that you're embarking on, this new path of service, uh, what is your main goal for this continued service? Ooh, the main goal, I would say, is there are at least three areas where I'd like to see dramatic improvement. I would like to see dramatic improvement in the impoverished part of our city. I'd like to see performance increase for minority students in school and then uh, also low SES students, you know, because those two categories tend to be at the bottom in almost everything society-wise. And then lastly, I'd like to see veterans. I would like to see several thousand discharge upgrades. I mean, that sounds ambitious, but I don't think it is. I'd like to see several thousand discharge upgrades so that people who um, gave their all to our country should also get their country's all in return. So if I can do those three things by the time I'm out of office, my job will have been done. That's incredible. Ken, I have one last question for you today. Could you speak to other veterans who are interested in pursuing a career in office? What would you say to them? Oh, I would say your country still needs you to serve. And that as a result of what you've been through, you are more than qualified. And believe it or not, uh, sometimes we look at the, the shine and the polish we see on TV. But um, what you'll discover in some cases is that you not only are more qualified and talented, you are more invested and you have a lot to offer of this nation. So I would say, please don't be intimidated. Please don't think you're not, uh, you don't have what it takes. That's not true. And start pursuing the process. And if you do the work, you will be successful. That's it. You do the work, you will be successful and people will be glad that you served again. Those are pretty powerful words to end on, Ken. And you know, service runs deep in all of our blood, all of us veterans. Thank you so very much for coming on today, continuing to spread your light to our community, to your local community, to your great state. We're so excited to see all the great things that you do. We want to thank Ken for continuing to serve his community in such a powerful way. Thank you everyone for tuning in this week for another episode, highlighting one of our incredible catch lift veteran athletes. A special thank you to Ken for sharing your journey with us in this new endeavor. We were so excited to hear about it and to, to hear the, these words from you. Don't forget to join us every Wednesday live at 1 p.m. Eastern on YouTube for a chance to win Cal Swag and to chat with your brothers and sisters. If you liked today's episode, please be sure to like and subscribe on YouTube and leave us a review on your favorite streaming service. Until next week, keep it real and stay Cal strong.